Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 again. And uh, we're in the middle, or actually nearing the end now, of our series on biblical manhood and womanhood. And I come to the one topic where um, I want to make a, a uh, statement ahead of time. I, I, I've never really done this before, but I want to say this. Don't draw any conclusions until we reach the end. All right? Um, I have to say that because of the culture in which we live and the way people think nowadays about what I'm getting ready to say. For generations and generations, what I'm getting ready to say this morning would have um, in large part been accepted um, without a lot of question, but not today. Today, uh, the opposite is being said strongly and repeatedly. And, and so what I'm going to say may strike some people as, as inappropriate or somehow, wow, can that be right? And yet, what I'm challenging us all in this whole series is to think about what, what actually does the Bible say? And is the Bible uh, saying the same thing that our culture is saying? And uh, if not, which one am I going to choose? Which one am I going to choose? We're talking about the woman in the home. We talked last week about the man in the home. It's a little odd. I didn't plan it exactly right. I guess we could have had the man in the home on Father's Day, but uh, it's okay. It all, it all fits together. And I want to start uh, this morning by saying that, uh, trying to state succinctly in, in uh, a truth that we've seen up to this point, and that is that a woman has a crucial role in the home that was designed by God and is fitted to her nature. And this is important. We saw in Genesis that God put the primary responsibility to lead the partnership on the man. God, and also God gave them both, man and woman, together the first commission. And the first commission was to, to fill the earth and to rule over the earth, to have dominion over the earth, to manage it, to run the earth, to run this planet, to populate it and run it all for his glory. And together, they're to work for God's glory on the earth. But we noticed, too, in Genesis that he created the man first, and then he created the woman to be, as it's said in Genesis, a helper suitable to the man. Paul, the apostle, picks this up in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now, you can hardly pick a verse that's rubs against our modern sensibilities uh, more than that one. The woman was created for the man. The man wasn't created for the woman. There's a truth there, though, that I think is vital for us to understand. There's many misconceptions of what that means, and there's distortions of maybe how that's to be lived out. But I don't want to take my cues from those. I want to try to seek from God what, what is it that he means by that. Because whatever it means is something important to our very being. It's important to me as a man. It's important to my wife as a woman. 
We saw too in Titus uh, chapter 2, we saw that uh, the, there was a priority given uh, to the woman for her home. Not that other endeavors were wrong or forbidden, but there was something about the home that's vital to the very nature of the woman. I suggested that, that uh, as much as she is able, the wife should strive to fit her outside work around her role as wife and mother rather than the other way around. I also said and, and still say that, that the priority of the home fits with the woman's nature and her role as a helper to her husband. We saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the woman is known for gentleness and tenderness and nurturing care. The nature of a woman is different than that of a man. And we're suggesting in this whole series that that difference is not merely a result of being programmed. It's not something that's been programmed into us by our surrounding culture, but it's something deep within us, touching upon who we are as persons. And this is different, very different than what is being told to us via the media and in academia today. They are separating our personhood from whether we are male or female. And I'm suggesting that to do so is to do violence upon what God has created. Now, it seems that... It would be appropriate in speaking about womanhood that we should really have a woman doing this, right? And so I've invited Elizabeth Elliot to speak. She's not here personally, but I uh, am going to read from her. If you don't know Elizabeth Elliot, who she is, she was a missionary uh, back in the 1950s. She's the, she's the husband and then the widow of the martyr, Jim Elliot, who was killed trying to bring the gospel to the Alka Indians in South America. Uh, she later became a writer and even a professor in graduate school, a graduate school level professor, extremely gifted uh, woman, and a very strong spokesperson for, for the issue of, of um, femininity and womanhood and what it means. And she, living through those early years of the feminist movement, she was always a counter voice to what was being said and challenging uh, what was gaining momentum with what does scripture say. She remember back in the day it was called the women's liberation movement. You remember that? We don't use that phrase anymore, but it was at the time she wrote what I'm going to read for you. That's what it was being called. And let me read to you something that she says. And I've picked this out. Uh, like I said, number one, because I do feel like it's appropriate that a woman would speak today on this issue. And number two, um, she's making the point in a way that only Elizabeth Elliot could make that this issue about what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man, it's tied deep to, to who we are and who God has made us. It's much deeper than just um, learning social patterns from our culture. Listen to what she says. Do the women's liberationists want to be liberated from being women? There are, according to their theorists, no fundamental differences between men and women. It is all a matter of conditioning, 
some very interesting facts have been uncovered by scientists which feminists will have to treat very gingerly for they show that it is not merely society which determines how the sexes will behave. There are strong biological reasons why the male has always dominated and will continue to dominate in every society. The idea of matriarchy is mythical, I've learned, for not one that can be documented has ever existed. Doesn't it seem strange that male dominance has been universal if it is purely social conditioning? One would expect to see at least a few examples of societies where women rather than men held the positions of highest status. Isn't it really much easier to believe that the feelings of men and women throughout history bear a direct relationship to some innate prerequisite? For a scientist, that prerequisite may be biological and or emotional, but for you and me, the prerequisite lies further back. By the way, I, want, I forgot to tell you that I've taken this from the book, Let Me Be a Woman, written by Elizabeth Elliott. And what they are is it's actually short little letters, almost like letters, that she's writing to her daughter. Uh, at, her daughter's engaged, not yet married. So it's actually quite a personal book. I think it's out of print, but uh, with the Internet, I'm sure you can get a copy. So uh, very, very, very profound book. Very, very interesting. So when she says, for you and me, she's talking to her daughter. She and, she and her daughter. She says, it was God who made us different, and he did it on purpose. Recent scientific research is illuminating, and as has happened before, corroborates ancient truth which mankind has always recognized. God created male and female, the male to call forth, to lead, initiate, and rule, and the female to respond, follow, adapt, submit. Even if we held to a different theory of origin, the physical structure of the female would tell us that women, woman was made to receive, to bear, to complement, to nourish. A human being comprises body, mind, and spirit. Any doctor will attest to the effect the mind may have on the body. Any psychiatrist knows that his patient's psychological problems may have physical effects. Any minister admits that what appears to be a spiritual issue may turn out to have physical and mental dimensions as well. No one can define the boundaries of mind, body, and spirit. Yet we are asked to assume nowadays that sexuality, most potent and undeniable of all human characteristics, is a purely physical matter with no metaphysical significance whatever. Yours is the body of a woman. What does it signify? Is there invisible meaning in its visible signs, the softness, the smoothness, the lighter bone and muscle structure, the breasts, the womb? Are they utterly unrelated to what you yourself are? Isn't your identity intimately bound up with these material forms? How can we bypass matter in our search for understanding the personality? There is a strange unreality in those who would do so, an unwillingness to deal with the most obvious facts of all. Every normal woman is equipped to be a mother. Certainly not every woman in the world is destined to make use of the physical equipment. But surely motherhood, in a deeper sense, 
is the essence of womanhood. Hear hear what she's saying. The body of every normal woman prepares itself repeatedly to receive and to bear. Motherhood requires self-giving, sacrifice, suffering. It is a going down into death in order to give life, a great human analogy of a great spiritual principle. Womanhood is a call. It is a vocation to which we respond under God, glad if it means the literal bearing of children, thankful as well for all that it means in a much wider sense, that in which every woman, married or single, fruitful or barren, may participate. The unconditional response, exemplified for all time in Mary the Virgin, and the willingness to enter into suffering, to receive, to carry, to give life, to nurture and to care for others. The strength to answer this call is given us as we look up toward the love, that's a capital L, meaning God, the love that created us, remembering that it was that love that first most literally imagined sexuality that made us at the very beginning real men and real women. As we conform to that love's demands, we shall become more humble, more dependent, on him and one another, and even, dare I say it, more splendid. That's some food for thought, isn't it? But it's true. That's why I read it to you. I believe that the current voices in our society which speak as if there are no profound differences between men and women, that attempt to define us as persons apart from our sex, They do violence to our spirits. They harm the very ones they profess to be helping. I challenge you, I challenge you to look up to God and accept what he has made you to be, a man or a woman. You need only to look at your body to figure out which you are. But then I want you to seek to learn what it means to be what it is that God has made you. And you will find greater joy and satisfaction that you ever imagined by learning to be what you are, not by following the voices in our culture that wants to that want to flatten everything out. The woman has a crucial role, a crucial role in the home. Again, in the past we've talked, I touched some on singles and and this has application to them, but as I go forward now this morning, I'm, I'm speaking to married women because I'm speaking about being in the home. The woman has a crucial role in the home, designed by God and fitted to her nature. I want to look at four components that apply to us in living out this role. One is an all-important attitude. Secondly, an inspiring example. Third, a vital practice. And fourth, an essential influence. First of all, an all-important attitude. We see that in Ephesians 5. And here again, I, I just say, remember, don't draw your conclusions until we reach the end. Chapter 5, verse 22, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. 
But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Here, the scripture raises this issue using the word submission. You know, you, you try to find a, a synonym for submit that sounds better, you know. You try to say, you know, you, you keep looking for another word, some other way to say it that kind of would please just take the edge off of it a little bit. Uh, I guess the Lord just wants the edge there. And there's an issue here, though. Um, what is this submission meant to be? If you're in our Sunday school classes, I hope I hope you go. We're going to uh, look at that this morning, and we'll see that John Piper's uh, definition, working definition, is this. Submission is the divine calling of the wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Submission is an inclination of the will to say yes to the husband's leadership and a disposition of the spirit to support his initiatives. That's a good, a good definition. But in our setting and in our culture and time, it raises all sorts of questions in our mind. Does that mean this? Does that mean that? And I would encourage you to go to Sunday school because we're going to talk about seven things that submission does not mean. And because we're going to do it there, I'm not going to do it here. But notice then in verse 33, as the end of the chapter comes, in a kind of a summary statement, Paul says, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife. So he's speaking to the man there. He's saying, you'll love your wife even as yourself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. It's interesting. Now he mentions the word respect. Before, he had just used the word submit. Um, implying and dealing with the fact that, well, the, the husband is the head of the home and there's some kind of corresponding response to him so that the woman isn't trying to be the head of the home too. There can only be one head. But now, instead of using the word submit, he uses the word respect. And he uses it in a way that it seems as if he's trying to help define what submission means seems like to me he's saying that there's an attitude here. It's an attitude more than anything, more than an action. It's an attitude where the woman, the married woman, is to have a respectful support of the man to whom she is married and an acknowledgement that the husband is the head and she willingly cooperate with God's design for marriage. There are, I believe, by God's grace, hundreds of examples of this being lived out. None of them have been perfect, but nonetheless, they are helpful. Hopefully in your life, you've seen some of these couples, people who have, who have got it right. In their own context, they've done a good job at living married together like this. And when we see it, we, we recognize in it there's something good, there's something deeply corresponding to our natures. There's nothing in it that's bad. There's nothing that demeans the woman at all in it. She's fulfilled. He's fulfilled. They're both living for God. We've seen examples like that, I hope. Perhaps you have not, but they're around. They're even in our church here. But no culture as a whole has got it right. You see, I think that we can find examples in couples 
But we can't look at our own culture or any other culture and see the culture that as a whole has it right. I don't believe that. Not about our own culture in the past or any other culture or our culture now. No culture's got it right, but couples have come close. But now, you see, each of the couples that came close, we recognize that in the past and even now, every couple that came close, they did so within a culture that had its own quirks and restraints on the couple. But I want you to see that today in our culture, all the restraints on women have been thrown off. And so now in our generation, it's our turn to look to God and have him help us as couples live out this thing called marriage in a way that comes closer to his design. The throwing off of the restraints can be a good thing if we follow God now because our culture's changed now and the possibilities are even more indifferent. So let's follow God. Let's pursue God. Let's accept from him what he's made us to be. And now maybe we'll get it a little bit more right than our parents did and our grandparents. Amen? Maybe this can be lived out even more. But while the restraints are off, though, we recognize that the culture's going insane. We can get a little bit closer, but it's going to look even more different than the culture. The culture is going to look more and more wacky. But we can still strive to find what it is that God has created us to be. Now, with that in mind, I want us to turn to Proverbs chapter 31. Turn to Proverbs 31. And I want us to look at an inspiring example. This is on page uh, 796, if you're using one of our Bibles. So, an all-important attitude is submission and respect on the part of the woman. But now look at this inspiring example. And, and if there was an example to erase this idea that, well, if, you, if you're talking about the man being the head of the home, if you're talking about the woman submitting, you must be wanting the woman to be barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen. Well... Hang on, put your seatbelt on. Let's read about what the Bible says about an, an excellent uh, wife. Beginning at verse 10. An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good <clears throat> and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar and rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor, and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. 
She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth and wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. I'll stop there. What an amazing picture of a woman. And I want to to remind you that this is in the same book that talks about the man being the head and about the issue of submission that a woman then would uh, a married woman would submit to her husband so whatever that headship and submission means it's it fits with what's in proverbs chapter 31 they're not contradicting each other they're written by the same author they're meant to fit together when i was looking at this passage i thought how how do i Wow, how do you, there's so much here. How do you deal with it all? And I went with my, I got a colored pencil out and I highlighted all the verbs, all the action verbs of what the woman does. You know what she does? It says she, she does, she looks, she works, she brings, she rises, she gives, she buys, she plants, she makes, she, she stretches, she extends. She sells, she supplies, she opens. She's active, she's, she's doing. And then there were some words here that spoke, some, some verses that spoke about her attitude. Not just her actions, but her attitude. Look at verse 18. It says that she senses that her gain is good. There's a, there's a deep satisfaction in her life. So she senses that, that as she works and as she does what she does and she reaps the benefit of it, she, there's something deep within her that, that is satisfied. She senses that this is good. You know, a lot of people will get a paycheck at the, at the end of the week or two weeks or month and sense that they're glad they got the paycheck but they don't have that sense of satisfaction inside of them that what they've been doing is good. You know, they're, they're happy in it. They're satisfied in it. But not her. She feels that sense of satisfaction. Then look at verse 25. It says, she smiles at the future. This woman is smiling. This woman that's lifted up before us as an example of an excellent wife She's smiling. She's not beaten down or, or, um, or in need of liberation. She's not what the feminists are fighting against. She's, she's happy and she's confident about moving forward into the future. Then look at 11, verse 11. It says, the heart of her husband trusts in her. Not only is she smiling, her husband's smiling. Everybody's happy. She's happy. He's happy. And by the way, so so are her kids. Look at verse 28. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Her family is praising her. Her kids... And her husband 
are singing her praises, literally, perhaps. This is an amazing woman. This is a picture now of, of, of an excellent wife. It's what the Bible calls an excellent wife. And you'll notice she's working. She's responsible. She's using her gifts. She's ministering. She's helping provide for her family. And she's doing it all with the family not being neglected. And everybody's happy. She's satisfied. Husband's happy. Kids are happy. Well, sometimes women wince when the preacher says, I'm turning to Proverbs 31, because a little bit of a wonder woman here, uh, super, super mom. I don't know that this passage is actually describing a particular woman. It's, it's more like, look, this is what we can be. But this is, it's an inspiration for women. And it needs to be placed there next to Ephesians 5 so that we don't run somewhere with Ephesians 5 that we're not supposed to be. I just feel compelled to say it again. I've said it all along, but this plan of God is beautiful. And it has nothing to do with a, a restricting or a demeaning of women. I don't think we've tasted it much yet, or we've tasted pieces of it. Let's keep going forward. When we speak of the women like this, you look at this. I mean, she's in real estate. She's a farming. She's selling, buying. How do you do all that and do it in a way that your family is not neglected and it fits? Well, you know what? There's no blueprint that God's going to give you that will show you just how to make your decisions. Your decisions in your life with your circumstances, uh, you just need to lean on God and he'll guide you as you pursue the best. You acknowledge, you and your husband, you acknowledge together your natures that are different and your roles. Be inspired by this example and then pray and ask God to help you make decisions and he will help you make decisions as you go. I, I don't pass on to you some rule that makes it easy. It's not always easy. Matter of fact, I haven't noticed yet when it was easy. But it, that's life and I think God's designed it that way so that we lean on him instead of on some rule book that we've come up with. But as we lean on him, there's this inspiring example. Now, thirdly, there's a vital practice. I mentioned this last week. It's the practice of family worship. And I said that on Father's Day, I'd have a present for the dads. And you might say, well, I thought we were talking about the moms. But mom, you've got to be a part of this. We talked last week about family worship, and I've got, I've got it for you, dads. It's back there on the literature table, and it's also in your Sunday school classes. Family worship guide. I have some instructions on this side. And then here's the goal. Just three times a week, brothers, three times a week, lead your family in reading the Scripture together and praying. And if you're inclined, sing some too. It'll be good for your heart, and it'll glorify God. It's not complicated, and here's the plan. If some of you have a plan, well, I'm not saying you have to replace that. Just do what you're doing. But some of you don't. So here's one for you, and I'm going to be doing it too. It starts this week, and you, can, you have three passages to read this week. And there's a box you can check off as you do each one. I think we can do it, gentlemen. 
Let's, let's do it. It's vital. But dad needs the support of mom, moms. Husband needs the support of his wife. And when dad says, well, you know, I haven't really done this before, but um, maybe we should do this, then you should say, yeah, sure, honey, let's, let's do it. And let him lead. You'll be the better for it, and so will he. Amen? Amen. Now, lastly, fourthly, we've looked so far at an all-important attitude. It's submission and respect. An inspiring example, that's, that's um, Proverbs 31. A vital practice, and we're, we're out of time, and I spent time on this last week, so I'm, I'm not spending a lot of time on it today, but as a family, even if that family is just husband and wife, in the Word of God in prayer, daily if possible, at least three times a week, I cannot overemphasize that practice. But now, fourthly, an essential influence. An essential influence. Not every wife becomes a mother. For some, God has a different plan, and that can be difficult to accept. Um, it often is, but there is blessing there, and we bow to God's sovereignty. But for many, even most of those who are wives, they become mothers. And let's not forget about the woman's privilege in the home to be a mother. Moms, you have a role to play in the forming of young lives that, you, that the dad can't do. I was uh, involved in uh, counseling um, uh, a mother, a young mother, some years ago. And... Um, I was actually just, she was actually just telling me about a counselor that she was meeting with. Because uh, she was having some trouble and, and then she was telling me about a question that this, this other counselor had asked her. The other counselor had said to her, at one point, she said, if you had to pick just one word, to describe, she said, now look, I'm gonna, when I say this, I want you to tell me the word that pops into your mind. Just one word to describe your mother. I know there's lots of words, but one word, what would it be? Now, this particular lady, she was telling me this because it was a negative word. It was, it was not a good word. And that what a shame, you know, for her. And that that had, her mother had shaped her in some ways that were negative. And, and that, was, that was a shame. And so she was sharing that with me. Later, I left the church. I got in the car. It's, it's interesting how you remember some of these. I remember where I was. I was. I was on the highway between Cedar Crest and Lehigh Street. I was driving that way. And I thought... Hey, I should ask the question to myself. What, I, what's the word that I think of when I think of my mom? And you know what word came to my mind? The word present. Not being given a present, but present, being there. My mom was always there for me. A couple years ago, let's see, it was 2004. Wow, that was more than a couple years ago. On Mother's Day, I wrote my mom a poem 
It's not a poem that rhymes, but it's a poem. And I'm going to read it to you. It was, I named the poem, You Were Always There. Here's how it goes. As a little child at the doorway, I heard my friend's voices outside and saw the snow coming down, frantically struggling with layers of clothes and winter paraphernalia. I was worried I'd miss the fun. But you were there, as you always were, helping with the scarf and gloves and ushering me out the door. Coming out of practice, tired and sore, I didn't think of it then, just took it for granted, that as I'd emerge from the high school doors, you'd be there to take me home and cook me a meal, and you always were. Driving back from college, the West Virginia mountains giving way to Maryland hills, my heart full of all I was experiencing in college life, I didn't realize how important it was, nor did I even know that it was something to think about, that I subconsciously knew that when I got home and opened the door, you'd be there, and you always were. Twice you tried to take college courses. I don't really know why that was your decision. Twice your plans were providentially altered. We don't really know why. That was God's decision. But all during that time, as I would leave through our home's door or come back through the same, you were there. The ceremony was over, the reception a memory. We gathered at a friend's house. I packed the car and readied it for my honeymoon trip. Indoors were two women, you and Becky. Becky was now the woman of my life. But that was the way it was supposed to be. And although I didn't think of it until later, when we left the house and drove into the night, you were there. A lump was in each of our throats in Newark's airport lounge. Very soon, I'd enter a decade of African adventure, which meant a long goodbye for you. But the doorways we each left through that day didn't change the inner strength I felt that had become, it seemed, a part of my very soul. Strength, because you had always been there. Other moms earn large salaries, write books, teach courses, are mentioned in the newspapers. But my mom was there for me and for my sister and my brother. And what we are in large part, and we are what we are in large part because you were always there. Thank you, Mom. I love you. You know what, moms? There's nobody, there's nobody that can have an influence on your children the way you can. Don't give that up for anything. You were made for it. Your nature is for that. Your roles that God has designed for you is for that. And the world is better for it when you don't fight against what God has made you to be, but you relax and let God lead you and make you into what he wants you to be. Our time is up. Our time is up. But I, I pray that, that we would see what God has for us as being a great blessing and as a beautiful, beautiful uh, dance together. 
in which God is, God is glorified and the world is the better for it. And we are satisfied as we live as God has made us to be. Let's stand together and, and close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for how good you are to us. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us a desire to be the men and the women that you want us to be. And give us the grace to make the right decisions and to, to walk with you. Help us, O oh Lord. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord bless.